you have a Bible, um, turn with me uh, to Romans chapter 3. We'll get there in just a wee moment, um, but the topic, I'll give you time to turn, the topic is Jesus our substitute. And I kind of wanted to stick around the Easter theme a wee bit more this morning. I know it's after Easter, but uh, I want to stick in and around the cross and talk a wee bit more about that. Um, As I said, we have a wee uh, three-year-old. He's three and a half. His name is Jack. He is a ton of fun, uh, lots of energy, very high, too high energy, to be honest, uh, but we enjoy him. And and one of the great joys of parenting is that um, kids are just profoundly inquisitive and constantly learning, constantly asking questions, constantly trying to find out things. One of the great challenges of parenting, though, is that you're the one they're asking all the flipping questions to, okay? You are expected to be the fount of all knowledge at all times, and I'm pretty sure they go to some sort of toddler seminar uh, at about age two where they figure out the trickiest questions they can ask you and how to stump you on a regular basis. And parents in the room, you'll know this. There's one question above all else that will get asked repeatedly and that will push you to your wit's end, and that is this, why? Okay, yes, I'm seeing some nodding from the parents in the room. The question, why? Jack went through a phase when literally all we could, we could not stop him from asking the question, why? It was infuriating, okay? Uh, we, we were going, I remember, this genuinely happened, um, not that I lie here on a regular basis. That's so I think I tell. No, this is true. But, but we, we pulled up. Uh, we were going to the Ulster Museum. I decided to take him out to the Ulster Museum. He goes, Daddy, why are we parking? And uh, we go, well, uh, we're going to the museum. He said, why? He's like, well, I thought it would be fun. Why? Well, there's stuff in the museum. It's old stuff. They have like armor and dinosaurs. I didn't really know what was in the Ulster Museum, but I knew they had a dinosaur. Like, armor and dinosaurs. So I thought you'd enjoy that. Um, I was like, why? And he started to sort of speculate, like, what happened in the museum curator's life that made him want to put things on display for chill. I said, I don't know, okay? They ask why enough times. You start contemplating the origins of the universe and tearing your hair, right? Is why does anything exist for any reason? I don't know, okay? I don't have an answer to all your whys. And he was just, he did this for months on end until I figured out the solution, which is to give him the most complicated philosophical answer humanly possible at the very first why, which would just confuse him. So he'd be like, he'd say why, and I would go, well, it's really because if we get down to the root of it, son, it's because uh, the God of all the universe in his sovereignty and wisdom decided without violating human agency that that would be so. So stuff that in your pipe and smoke it, kiddo. (laughs) Anyway, That question, why, is a good question. Because we're good at the what of Easter. We've just gone through Easter, and we we are good at the what in the church, okay? We know what happened. If I asked you what happened at Easter, you would know. You you would have Palm Sunday. You've got Jesus' sort of final days, Passover. You've got Gethsemane, arrest, trial, crucifixion, resurrection. You know the what, okay? And if anyone asks you the what, if you've grown up in church circles, do you know what? That is something that you know. But, But the problem often arises or a problem often arises whenever we go a little bit further and we ask, well, why did all that happen and why did that have to happen? Because um, our what in Christianity is a, it's, it's a very startling and very out there what, okay? Like, like a crucifixion that the center of our faith is a man dying on a cross, 
That, that, is, that is an unusual thing to make as the center of your faith. And yet Christians throughout history, that has been the primary symbol of Christianity. It has been the primary thing that we gather around. It is the essential part of the Christian faith. And it, as many of you know, was a horrific way to die. It's, it's just an unusual thing to make the center of your faith. Crucifixion was considered to be the worst way to die in the ancient world. Uh, Josephus, a historian, wrote that it was a, the most wretched of deaths. Cicero, another contemporary of his, says that it was unfitting for Romans to either speak of or even think of it. Uh, and the Jews, who obviously Jesus was, was a Jew uh, at the time, considered rightly that uh, dying on a cross was a sign that you were cursed by God we're told in Deuteronomy that cursed is he who dies by hanging on a tree on wood. And, and Jesus died that death. And, and it was such a brutal and, and terrible thing. We don't need to go into all the graphic details of it, but many of you will be aware of that to some extent. And making that the center of our faith is, is just an unusual thing. It's like making, and I'll push it into our day, it is like making a noose or, or a gas chamber or an electric chair the symbol of your faith. Like, like that's what we have as the center of Christianity. That, that's unusual. And that what is interesting, we know that what, but the question arises, why does that save us? And if we don't know that, then what ends up happening is we, we can kind of treat it as a sort of dramatic stunt. As kind of a dramatic thing that God happened to just prove that he, you know, really likes us and he really loves us. And we do, but we can't explain any mechanics of it. We can't really, you know, unwrap that for anyone. Paul Reed, who, who's pastor or pastor emeritus of, of CFC, um, and who has spoken here many times, he gives this analogy. Uh, if you view the cross that way, he says it's kind of like you're, you're walking across a bridge with someone, and they say, "I love you so much," and I'm just going to prove that I love you, and they jump off the bridge into the river below and drown. And that, sometimes that can be how we treat the crucifixion. If we don't know why that happened, if we don't know why the cross happened. That's what it can sort of feel like, or, or someone asks us why, and that's as much as you can say. But, but, but it's not like that. Uh, it's more like this. My, my cousin was a rower um, for, for Queen's, um, a good rower, and he was out rowing one day with, with the team, and they rowed under a bridge on the lagging. And uh, just as they came out the other side of the bridge, they, they saw someone in the water drowning. There were people on the bridge shouting that they should, you know, there's a guy drowning there. And, and they did what, what they should have done in that situation. And they, they jumped out of their boat and pulled the guy to shore. And uh, it was on the news and stuff. We, we ch- well, actually, we kept them going about it, to be honest, because um, uh, they said on the news, well, we checked if he was breathing, he was, but we decided to give him mouth to mouth anyway. I was like, that's a strange choice, okay? You didn't need to do that. Um, but uh, they were probably in shock from the cold water, okay? Um, but but, but the, the cross... If we understand the why, we can understand that this isn't just a stunt. This isn't like some Greek tragedy. This isn't Shakespeare. This isn't Romeo and Juliet. This isn't just death for death's sake because of passion. It's actually doing something. Jumping into the water makes sense if there's someone in that water drowning, right? doesn't make sense otherwise. So, so I, I kind of want to push the boat out a little bit this morning and do something that's a little bit theological. It's a little bit of a Bible study, okay? So, so track with me. It's more than I would maybe normally push on a Sunday, but I think it's worthwhile doing. 
I think it's worthwhile doing because it really helps us to know this why. Like that's a useful thing. You're gonna for yourself for ex, for explaining things to others. It's also useful because it's really under attack. Um, this view and this understanding of the cross is something that in our kind of circles, charismatic evangelical circles, so we would consider ourselves to be part of, um, th- this view of the cross is, has been um, attacked and, and misrepresented and maligned quite a bit by, by major figures within our own group in the last sort of 15, 20 years. Uh, and to be honest, I think what's that we're losing something if we don't talk about it. And so I think it's worthwhile doing so. Um, so I, I want to read, uh, we'll get, get to our passage in Romans here. Romans 3, verse 21 to 26. I'll give you some forewarning. This is a dense passage, okay, but I am going to unpack it, but we'll read it first. Uh, so try and track with me here. Romans 3, 21 to 26 says this. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Right, as I said, complex passage. Paul here is trying to explain why Jesus went to the cross. That's what he's getting to. And he gives us this as a key portion of why this had to happen. So let me pull out one or two items from this that will help us. One of the things that Paul says, he says it four times explicitly. He says the righteousness of God, the righteousness of God. And another time in this, he says the glory of God, which he's using almost synonymously. So it's really about five times. Paul gets back to why the cross had to happen is connected to what God is like. God's character, God's nature, who God is. See, in our... um day and age and the society that we've grown up in, if, if we're talking 21st century, that kind of uh, the latest trends in society. There's a side of God that we can really talk about and really admire very naturally. And that is the side of the sort of love of God, the kindness of God, the grace, the goodness, all of those things. Like we're, we're pretty good on that. We're strong on that. We sing about that. We enjoy that. And yes and amen, we should. Okay, we absolutely should. But Paul here, he, he talks about another side of God. Uh, and he talks about the side of God that is his righteousness. That is God's desire that things should be right. That God rejects sin. That God is holy. That God is separate from sin. That God is, is distinct from us. That God has a standard. An actual standard. And that standard really, really matters. And so we have that, right, this character of God. And then Paul goes on to say that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have this problem. We have these two sides of God and we have mankind and mankind has an issue, which is that we've sinned. Right now, most of us will have probably heard of The Fall, okay? If you haven't, great TV series, okay? Stars Jamie Dornan, my wife's second favorite Jamie. Um, 
But that's not the fall we're talking about. We're talking about the fall into sin. When mankind as a whole in the garden, Genesis 3, decides that they're going to break God's law. They're going to break what God has told them to do. And as a whole, we've done that. And then, do you know what? We've all individually done that as people. It's not just that Adam did something. We did something, right? We've done many things where we've broken the law of God. And that's what Paul says here in Romans 1 and Romans 2 and summarizing it here in Romans 3. We've all sinned. And so what does God do in the midst of that, right? God's got his love for us and he's got his righteousness and then we have sinful human beings. Now, now some would argue that God can just sort of decide to forgive. God can just go, do you know what? I'm not going to deal with that. It's all good. That's, that's the kind of forgiveness that's on offer. He doesn't need, uh, uh, there's no payment. There's no satisfaction. There's nothing that needs to happen. He can just decide that this is okay. And the cross, therefore, nothing to do with God, nothing to do with his standards, nothing to do with that. It's all about how, you know, just showing his love and how bad we are and, and how far we can push it. And yet God loves us. Now, in one sense, that's not untrue. Like the cross does show that. But, but if it's only that, it's a stunt. If it's only that, it's just a, a dramatic, you know, enactment of the love of God and not really actually doing anything. And the fact is that the Bible tells us that God can't forgive like that, that God will not forgive like that, that his forgiveness doesn't look like just deciding and brushing everything under the carpet. I'll give you a few scriptures just to, just to bring that uh, back, to, back to the Bible for us. Um, in Genesis 3, what does God say? He says to Adam and Eve, if you eat this fruit, you will surely die. Now, I know this is sort of a strange way to put it, but that's a promise from God. It's, it's not the kind of promise that we would like and go, yeah, I'm going to put that as my screensaver, okay? But, but that's what he says. If you eat this fruit, you will surely die. So if God simply forgives, if it's just an arbitrary forgiveness, he's breaking his word. We're told in, in Exodus 23, 7, God will not acquit the wicked. So sin is not going to be left undealt with. We're told that. We're given this amazing passage, actually, in Exodus 34. Um, and I'll read this for us. Um, and try and track with it again. Um, this, is, this is dense, but, but really interesting. Um, this is where Moses encounters God on the top of the mountain. And he asks God to show his glory. God does. And it says this in Exodus 34, 6 and 7. The Lord passed before him, Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin. Sounds great up to that point. We've got this side of God over here. Listen to this next bit though. Here's what God says at the same time as that. He says, But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and children's children to the third and fourth generation. So, so, so God's forgiveness has to not violate his right standards. God's very clear. It can't be arbitrary. In fact, this is not just an Old Testament concept. It's clear in the New Testament. Romans itself tells us the wages of sin is death. Right? So that's the issue we have. Now, now we might ask, well, why can't God forgive like that? Why, why has he said these things? Maybe he has said them, but why can't he? Because surely he asks us to forgive that way. Like, like if you wrong me, I, I'm not asked to, to sort out a payment. I'm not asked to get everything resolved. That might be appropriate, but forgiveness is offered freely. Why doesn't God give us that 
kind of forgiveness? Why is that something God can't do? I'll give you an analogy to help you understand. Um, as a couple, we like to be relatively punctual, and we're pretty good at it. We were better before we had a kid, but we're still doing all right. Um, one morning, uh, a few months ago, we were uh, heading out to, to come to church here. We live up in Belfast. We are coming down to church here, and um, one of us was late getting into the car. Now, I'll not say which one, okay, but it was Jack's mother. Um, and that's all I'll say, but I'm not giving a name. Uh, and so we were late, we were delayed, and I, I don't want to incriminate myself by saying I was speeding. I'll just say I was driving with urgency, okay, to be on time for church. It was sanctified, uh, what I was doing. It was good. Um, Anyway, we were on the West Link, and there was a car pulled alongside us as we were driving at whatever speed it may have been. That may not have been exactly the speed limit. Um, and it pulled alongside us and stayed there for a bit. And I was like, are they going to go past us? You know, fair enough, I don't mind. But then they didn't. And just as we pulled out onto the motorway, they pulled in behind us, blue lights flashing. Do you know what? Police had pulled us over. Now, as you can imagine, tensions were rising in the car at this point in time, Okay. Jack goes, Daddy, why did the policeman pull us over? And I go, firstly, son, don't ask why again. This is the worst time. And secondly, it was your mother. That's why, okay? I have an answer to that why. Anyway, the policeman gives us his whole spiel, you know, uses the word RTA, which all policemen use, road traffic accident, okay? And uh, uses this whole thing. And you might think that I'm not the kind of person who would use going to church as a way to get out of a speeding ticket, but I absolutely would. I have no shame about that. And it worked. It was fantastic. It was great. Uh, got out of it, and and he sent me on, on my way. Now, I have to say, I'm generally a pretty reasonable driver, okay? Actually don't mean to boast, but one time I did get invited by the government to a special expert driving course. They call it speed awareness, but, you know, uh, <laughs> close enough. Uh, generally all right, actually. But anyway, we think that forgiveness can be like that. It can be just, hey, we're just going to let you off. Well, we'll just let you off. That's all right. But think about this. What if something had actually happened? Like, like it wasn't just a, a breach of a, a technical speed limit, but someone had been hurt. I, I'd run into someone, killed someone. You know, what, what if that was the nature of the incident? What if that was what happened? And the policeman pulls me over and goes, oh, do you know what, uh, you're, you're on your way to church, that's grand. Mow down as many people as you like, fire ahead, you know. Or, or you stand before a judge and the judge goes, I think you're just great and I'm a really kind judge so I'm just going to forgive you. Who, well, that would, be, that would be a travesty of justice. That would be wrong. It wouldn't be right. That's, that's not okay. And so here's the thing. God is absolutely a loving father, but he is also a righteous judge. And at the same time, he is both of those things. If he forgives in a way that's just, hey, we're just going to let it go. We'll let it off the hook. Then, then he is not only breaking his word, what he said to us, he's violating his own character. He is just at his very core. Justice is not like some secondary, one writer put it this way, I thought it was a terrible thing to say, to be honest. He said, uh, God doesn't have to pay off some secondary God called justice so he can forgive us. That's, that's not it at all. That's, that's, that's not the issue. The issue is that God is himself just. God is one who keeps his own word and his own law. If God forgave like that, he would become guilty of sin. If, if a policeman did that, if a judge did that, they would be breaking the law. If God forgives like that, he would be breaking his law. But put it, put it this way. This is a useful way to put it. God is not the classical Northern Irish, hardcore, 
you know, turn or burn, rejoicing in the death of the wicked. Everybody is terrible but me, God, that many of us may have grown up hearing about. If you're from a more traditional background, you've been around the church a good long time. That's the kind of God that's often been presented to us. He's not that God. Definitely not. But neither is he a sort of dress-wearing, long-haired, you know, smoke a peace pipe, peace and love man. Everything's good. We'll not worry about anything. You know, he's not that God of modern progressive relativism. He's not that God either. He is, at the same time, a God who genuinely, genuinely, genuinely loves sinners. Which includes all of us, by the way. Right? We're all in that category. He, he really loves us far more than we could ever imagine. Like, beyond what we could ever think. He really, really loves us. And at the same time, he really, really hates sin. He really does. Sin is so against who he is. It is such a violation of his law, his nature, his character. He hates it. And so he has a plan to forgive sinners, but at the same time, it's also a plan to deal with sin. So what is that plan? How does God deal with it? Well, this is clear across the whole Bible. This, this is cover to cover. We see how God is going to deal with this. Right from the beginning, Adam and Eve fall into sin. And we're told, they're told, if, if you eat this fruit, you're going to die. Now they don't, interestingly, they don't immediately die. No, they, they die eventually, but they don't immediately die. But something does immediately die. There's an animal that is sacrificed, that is killed, and God, God himself is the one that kills it. That's what we're told. And that clothing is put on them, or the, the skin of that animal is put on them as clothing to cover their nakedness, to cover the consequences of their sins. The animal dies. The first sacrifice is instituted by God himself. And then we see this continue throughout the whole of the Old Testament. The Passover is a really big one. That's where God is going to judge not just the Egyptians, okay? But he's going to judge everyone in Egypt, including the Israelites. They're told if you don't sacrifice a lamb, your firstborn will die as well. And so they have to sacrifice a lamb in the place of their firstborn. They have to make that sacrifice. And they have to do that every year and for every firstborn child or animal. They have to sacrifice to God in the place of that uh, person. Uh, then there's the Day of Atonement. Atonement, atonement is that's a huge day in the Israelite calendar. Um, the, 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 there's one person once a year gets to come into the presence of God. That's the high priest. But before he can come in, he has to do two things. He has to lay his hand on one goat and confess over that goat all the sins of the entire nation. As a, in, in, in generalities, not one by one, but it confesses all the sins of the nation and sends that out into the wilderness. So it carries away their sins, that's what we're told. And then they have to sacrifice another one to pay the penalty for the sins of the nation. And he brings that blood into the presence of God. And this, this is, uh, j- those are just the major ones. There's, there's ongoing constant sacrifice. If you went to church in Israel, if you went to the temple uh, before Jesus came, what would you have seen? It would not have looked like this, okay? Craig would have been outside, covered in blood, slaughtering lambs and grilling them, okay? It would have been a slaughterhouse and a barbecue. Actually sounds all right, to be honest. Roast lamb every day sounds pretty good to me. But that's, that's what um, Old Testament worship looked like. If we put it all together, what do we see? You see, God wants to deliver his people. God wants them not to die. God wants them to be in his presence, 
And he wants to give them blessing and favor and all of those good things. But for that to happen, there also must be a dealing with sin. And it can't be just an arbitrary, I'm going to let it go. In fact, Hebrews makes this perfectly clear. Hebrews 9, I believe it's 26, I'm not sure. Um, but it says this, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. There must be a shedding of blood. Now, there's an issue even with this, because they had this whole thing going on. The issue is that this doesn't fully work. It kind of works. It allows God to temporarily pass over sin. Adam and Eve eventually die, and uh, the people keep falling into sin. Or as we're we're told here in Romans 3.25, that uh, God in his divine forbearance had passed over former sins. So they had to constantly offer, and it kind of worked, but it was ongoing. And so you have this problem of sin, and you have this partial solution, but you don't have a real solution. You've got a genuine problem. And so what is the answer to that problem? If you've been to Sunday school, you know the answer is always Jesus. Okay, the answer is Jesus. Jesus comes and sorts that out. Jesus is absolutely unique and is able to resolve this for the for us in a unique way. How does he do that? Well, uh, Timothy Keller, many of you may have read his stuff. Uh, he gave this analogy. I think it's really useful. He says, um, if, I was, uh, if I threw a stone through your window and I broke it, uh, we would have a problem. Now, I, I originally thought Keller came from New York. It turns out Timothy Keller's from East Belfast, everybody. Okay, he'll come and do your windies if he doesn't like you, okay? Um, but uh, he says this, you know, it's like on one side you've got justice that demands that the person who threw the stone and broke the window should pay for it. Right? That's what justice requires. And on the other side, mercy would say, well, I had my window broken, but in, in an act of mercy, I'm going to pay for it. You have both of those things, and God is fully just and fully merciful. And so we bring Jesus into the picture. And what is Jesus? Well, Jesus is fully God and fully man. And when he dies and when he gives his life for us, he's able to do something unique. He stands in the place of man. And he pays the price for sin. He stands in our place. And when he does that, what happens? Justice is fulfilled. Justice is done. The person who broke it paid for it. The person who had broken the law paid the price. We, as mankind, paid it in Jesus. He was our representative, like Adam was our representative. And at the same time, because he's fully God, he stands in the place of God, in the place of mercy, and he says, I pay for it as God. And so mercy is done and justice is done and they come together in this remarkable moment on the cross where God is able to be, as we're told here in verse 26, both just and the justifier of all of us. That is, he's able to say, the law has been kept and yet I'm going to treat all of you like you all kept the law even though you haven't because someone paid the penalty for you in your place. You should have received something from me. It should have been punishment, but instead you got mercy because that has been fulfilled. It has been done. The cross is this incredible, incredible picture of God as all that he is and as man as all that we are, where it tells us we're really sinful, but we're really loved, and that God is really holy, but he's really good. It brings it all together. It's amazing. Now, what does this do for us? Let me, let me try and make it a bit practical. How does that impact our lives rather than just giving us an idea? Uh, I'll, give you, I'll give you something that, that I think helps and, and spoke to me anyway. Um, actually, it, it, it spoke to someone else as well. Uh, it's, uh, um, 
There was a guy, whenever I was on staff, many of you will know I was on staff at CFC for a few years. There was a guy who came into one of our services, not a Christian, uh, but, but was exploring uh, spirituality. He, he was uh, going through Alcoholics Anonymous, and they encouraged him to explore basically any kind of spirituality as a help to get through uh, their, their uh, addiction and, and to recover from that. And um, we, he, was, he was interested, and we, we, I ended up getting a coffee with him, and he was interested in kind of techniques of prayer and learning how Christians kind of did things and, and trying to draw some sort of spiritual techniques that he could add into his life. And I said, look, be, I'd love to chat with you about that. That would be great and we can do that. But before I do that, um, I, w- I want to talk to you about the cross. Because I know now, I don't pretend to know a lot about substance abuse. Um, but, but I do know that one of the key drivers of it is guilt. And it tends to be a guilt cycle where people feel guilty and so they drink and then they feel guilty because they drink. And it's a vicious, vicious cycle. Um, and they're, they're feeling uh, completely crushed by it and unable to, to get away from it. And, and so I talked him through this. I talked him through what we're talking about. And I said, look, the cross shows us like the seriousness of our sin. Like it doesn't let us run from it. Like medicating yourself is running from it. Whatever you're doing, that's, that's you running from your sin. The cross actually doesn't, it cuts that off because it very, very publicly says, no, 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 sin is bad. And what you've done, like it is bad. It's really, really actually bad. And yet at the same time it says, but it, that doesn't mean it isn't paid for. That doesn't mean it isn't dealt with. It deals with it perfectly. Here, here's the glory of the gospel. By the way, that guy came to faith. It was amazing. Here's the glory of the gospel, right? It's, it, it's this. Our sin, it, it, it doesn't, we, we don't run away from it, but we are not run over by it. We run to Jesus with it. Like it's real guilt. It's real sin. It is real. It's, it's serious, but it has been seriously dealt with. It has been seriously paid for. That price has been paid. We, we don't pretend to be better than we are. We don't try and minimize our sin. We don't try and get God to minimize our sin. What we say is, God took that seriously. I'm taking it seriously. But it is seriously, seriously, seriously dealt with. It is finished. That is the heart of the gospel. And for some of you, I think in a room this size today, and those watching online as well, do you know what? I believe there'll be people in a place like this and there'll be things in your life that you say, do you know what? I don't believe God could forgive me of that. I don't think he could let that go. Like it wouldn't be right for him to let that go. If he's really a holy God, you know, he, he, couldn't, he couldn't just let that go. He couldn't forgive me of that. And in one sense, look, if all we were talking about here this morning was kind of God going, yeah, we'll just brush that under the carpet, you would be absolutely right. In fact, all of us with all of our sins, we would be absolutely right. But but there are certain sins that we really know that that can't happen with. If, If that's all that happened on the cross, God brushed things under the carpet, you're correct. But that is not what happened on the cross. What happened on the cross is God took that sin and he nailed it to the cross. He nailed it to the cross. As we're told in Colossians, he wiped out the handwriting that was against us, of requirements that was against us. That means all the penalty, everything that we should have paid, everything that the judge should give us, everything that the police should give us, you know, all of that side of things, God's divine policeman, his angels, uh, he as a judge should say, you should get, he did it. 
that has been paid, that has been given to Jesus. He took it for us. That's what happened at the cross. And so all of this means that Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. He's the perfect sacrifice. He is the perfect substitute. I will give you, just to prove my point, in case anyone thinks this is just a nice theory that, yeah, it might fit, but it's not really in the Bible. I'm going to just whack you with Scripture for about a minute here, okay, and then you'll believe that it's in the Bible in case you don't. Isaiah 53, verse 5, tells us this. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. Verse 6, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 10, the Lord made his life an offering for sin. Verse 11, he will bear their iniquities. Uh, Verse 12, for he bore the sin of many. Uh, He was the Passover lamb. That's all Passover language. Do you know that Passover lambs, they were raised in Bethlehem. The shepherds watching over them were keeping Passover lambs. Do you know that the day Jesus walked into Jerusalem on the donkey, that was the day that the Passover lambs were brought in for inspection to Jerusalem. Do you know that when those lambs were born, they were wrapped in swaddling cloths to protect them from injury. Jesus is our Passover lamb. And we're told that straight out, 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. He's that sacrifice. He's also our atonement sacrifice. John the Baptist, whenever he sees Jesus coming, he says, behold the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, that one that's sent out into the wilderness. And Hebrews 9 is all about how Jesus is the greater sacrifice. Verse 15, he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. Verse 28, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. 10 verse 12, when this priest had offered, that's Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice of sins himself, he sat down at the right hand of God. Guys, this is not just a theory about the cross. This is not, as they call it, an atonement theory. This is the heart of it. This is the center of it, that Jesus took our place and paid the price for us. It is the heart of the gospel. One last point as we bring it into land here. If, if all this is is the stunt, if all this is is arbitrary forgiveness, if that's all that happens, we're missing something else big. And here's what we're missing. That in these substitutionary sacrifices that we see throughout the Bible, it wasn't just about the removal of wrong. It was also about the addition of right. It wasn't just that, and particularly with our, our sacrifice in Jesus, it's not just that we were sort of brought back to Adam and Eve. We were given right standing with God. We're told this, uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. That's one half of it. The other half is this, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, there was a reason that those lambs that were sacrificed had to be spotless and pure and without blemish. Your sin went on the lamb, yes, but also the lamb's purity went on you. You were made like that in the sight of God. You were made pure, white, clean, and whole. You were made righteous. It's not like a substance, as as someone put it. Uh, It's not like a substance that you were given that substance of righteousness. No, no, no. It's a standing. It's a position. It's a legal standing where God says, you are not only simply made neutral with me, I am actually going to say that you have done good. I'm going to say, well done. 
Let, 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 me, let me give you one last example. Um, if you were to nick my car, right? We're getting very Northern Irish with our examples today, okay? But if you were to nick my car, you wouldn't, okay? It's not worth it, okay? But let's say you did. And let's say we sorted it out. Uh, let's say we dealt with it. You gave me the 38.16 that that car is worth, okay? And uh, we, we sorted it out relationally as well. You could be back to square one and we could be all good, but that still wouldn't give you like the rights of my, my family, the rights of my, my son or my, my wife or my parents. You wouldn't have that kind of, of standing with me. We might be genuinely all good, but you wouldn't necessarily be, you know, in the black. You wouldn't necessarily be in a positive place. But the cross is not just Jesus taking your sin. It's also him giving you his righteousness. So God, when he looked at Jesus on the cross, he saw your sin. And when he looks at you now, he sees Jesus' goodness. Because he took your standing, you get, whenever you come before God, you get to take his. You get to, this is remarkable, but this is what we're told in the Bible. And throughout, Hebrews is great on this. You get to come and you get to come like Jesus comes to the Father. With that boldness, that confidence, that assurance. And that is throughout the New Testament. God, over and over again, there's all this language of how we are given the position of Jesus. Legally in the sight of God, what are we told? We're told in Ephesians that we are adopted into his family. We're told in John that we have been given the right to be called children of God. Peter tells us that we are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. We're told in Romans that we are co-heirs. We are told in Colossians that we are seated in heavenly places. We are told over and over again, when God sees you, he sees the same things that he sees in Jesus. That has been given to you for free because Jesus took your penalty and he gave you his righteousness. You are not just a servant, you are a son. Even the girls, you're sons of God. Okay, You're given that status that was important back in the day. I know it's not anymore. But because Jesus, because Jesus took your punishment, you get his privilege. All of that. Now I know that's te- technical, I know that's theological this morning, but can I be honest? I think it was pretty good. So we'll close there, right? Why don't we sing together? I, that is just, I, I love this. We, we'll stand to our feet. We'll get the band back up here. But that is so good for us to know this morning. Like this, this substitution thing, it's awesome. It's at the heart of everything. We talked about there being no condemnation. I, I, I want you to see how little condemnation there is. When Jesus stands before the Father, does the Father condemn him? Absolutely not. Not any, obviously on the cross he paid that price. But at this moment, when Jesus stands before the Father, when Jesus is there with his Father in heaven, there's no condemnation. That is how little condemnation there is for you. Because he took your place and he's given you his. So if that is a weight on you this morning, if that condemnation is hanging over you, that sense of unworthiness. Look, look, we're all unworthy. There's no, no, of course we're not worthy in ourselves. Of course we don't stand before God and offer him things like he needs anything from us. That's not it. It's the worthiness of Jesus. You don't stand there because you had a good week and you did, you know, you prayed your prayers and you didn't swear too much and you didn't speed like a certain so-and-so who was chatting on stage this morning. You know, that's not it. You stand there before God because of Jesus without condemnation, not because of what you've done, but because of what he did. 
And of course, yeah, we deal with our sins. Repentance is still important, all of that. But condemnation, absolutely not. There is none. Because he took it all. 